Hey guys, I came up with a new monster for my campaign. It's half wolf, half hawk. So, like, will it have the body of a wolf and the head of a hawk? That's awesome. Isn't that kind of just like an owlbear? Oh, darn! Oh, fuck, you're right. satirists and welcome to swords and satire the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art i'm your dungeon manager jamie mokel here with my animalistic co-hosts i'm jack olander a local bishop that just wants to see love thrive you know if it's violent you know so be it but i'll give a polite applause in the background fair enough and i'm chelsea hollowell Mushroom by day, <laughs> sloth by night. <laughs> that is an interesting conversion. <laughs> Neither one is helpful. Oh, I mean, sloths are are interesting. Cute. They're very cute, and some mushrooms are cute, I guess. Yeah, we have to actually record at dawn and dusk when you're a human for a brief few seconds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> These podcasts are very difficult to put together. It takes us weeks. <laughs> we recorded this weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Well, guys, this week, it happened. We watched 1985's classic, Lady Hawk. Yeah. Directed by Richard Donner, who you probably know from Superman and the Goonies. The Donner Party. And the Donner Party, yes. Uh, This film stars Rudger Hauer, Michelle Pfeiffer, Matthew Broderick, John Wood, with appearances by Alfred Molina, Ken Hutchinson, Leo McKern, etc., etc., and the sweet, highly produced synthetic music sounds of Alan Parsons of the Alan Parsons Project. Yeah, it was some hot synth tunes going on. Ooh, so hot. So, so atonal for this movie. (laughs) It was like an 80s action movie. (laughs) I mean, it was, if even that, it was like an 80s, like, comedy almost in in terms of the soundscape. It was quite jarring. I know. But I loved it. I was rocking and rolling to these tunes. By the way, interesting fact, the director, Donner, he ate his twin in the womb in keeping with family tradition. Yeah. It's true. Hey, you gotta, I mean, just like Navarre in this film, family's very important and you have to have those memories those little relics of your family history, like You're his right. sword full of gems. And he never actually got a gem to fill into his sword, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. First, I think it's time for the summary. It's true. And, you know, call me a bit of a glass half full kind of person, but I think it's much better to eat your twin in the womb than after you're outside the womb. <laughs> That's just me. Fair. Yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> let's get a recap. 
your summary. So the setting is 14th century France, perhaps. Hmm, I'm thinking 15th century England? 38th century America. Oh, oh, oh God. <laughs> oh, is this like one of those... Um, like post-apocalyptic movies where it's actually like very far in the future, but it's cycled back around so it looks like the past. Perhaps rewriting history could illuminate further on that. <laughs> nice. So we start with the mouse, or Philippe Gaston, as he's known. He's climbing out of a shit pile oh, yep. in a shit tunnel. Yeah, that's true. To escape from prison. <laughs> He's the pee-pee-poo-poo man. <laughs> Say his name. You won't be laughing when he gets you. He's talking to God the whole time. Maybe he's <laughs> seeing God, too. Yeah, I wonder if that's like a hallucinogenic effect of being in poop water for too long. Yeah, he drank too much poop water. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then again, this is the Middle Ages. I think all water was poop water. Yeah, you'd know, Chelsea, since you're the mushroom by day. <laughs> yeah. So, Little Mouse is played by Matthew Broderick, by the way. Oh, very well cast. Mm -hmm. He's escaping from the dreaded dungeons of Aquila at the a fort. A, yeah, a keep? Yeah. This seems keep-like. Fortress-esque or keep-like. Sounds good to me. So, he uh, starts bragging when he gets to a nearby tavern about his escape, and he is caught by the guards that were chasing him. And Rookie he's mistake. <laughs> he's about to be beheaded until he's saved by some random man in black. Yeah, Etienne of Navarre. <laughs> First thing he does, kills a man. Yeah. yeah. Accidentally. Allegedly. Allegedly. That man jumped on his sword. He never went to court. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, first thing he does is he kills a man with a crossbow. Yeah. Second thing he does is accidentally kill another guy. Sorry, got it. <laughs> Third thing, bitch slapping somebody else. Yep. Uh, he All right, this is our hero, everybody. <laughs> he knows how to make an entrance, you know. Yeah, true. So, he saves Philippe, or Mouse, and, uh... Kind of, you know, kills a few more guards, embarrasses some others. Like you do. And then they escape on horseback. Goliath back. Goliath is the name of the horse. Yeah. And uh, there's a hawk flying with him. What's that about? Caca! <laughs> and then they escape and make their way to a farm. And after nightfall, a wolf attacks the farmer. But then there's some lady there talking to Mouse. And we, she's a beautiful lady. We should point out that dickhead farmer was trying to kill the mouse. That's true. The mouse being Matthew Broderick. Philippe. Mm. <laughs> I like mouse. It's endearing. We come to realize <laughs> that the wolf and hawk are his traveling companions, Etienne and Isabeau, star-crossed lovers who are cursed by a, an evil bishop to always be near each other but forever apart. Man. Because by day, she lives in hawk form, and by night, he lives in wolf form, and they can never truly be together. I hate when that happens to me. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way you said it like a romance novel. He's a wolf, and she's a hawk. <laughs> That's what I was going for. Yeah. So, I don't know, guys. I think he's a wolf, and she's a fox. Hey. <laughs> they both end up befriending Philippe in their own way and 
even though he's kind of annoying, he grows on them and he burrows his way into their hearts. Oh, very nice. Dude's got some charisma, not gonna lie. Yeah, he's a he's a full-on rogue. Every rogue needs at least a touch of charisma. Mm-hmm. He eventually comes to like them as well, and he tells them some sweet lies that they say about one another when they're in their human forms. He's kind of doing a um, Cyrano de Bergerac kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Kind of like filling in the blanks for their relationship because they can't communicate to each other. Yeah, he takes poetic liberties in yeah. their messages. Yeah. Maybe a bard level or two? Who? So there's one point when the guards catch up with them and they try to take Philippe hostage or back to prison, you know, because he's a prisoner. Um... <laughs> And Etienne finds him there and goes to save him. And Lady Hawk joins in the fight, and they're both injured with crossbow bolts. Oof. And it's it's dire. They think that Isabeau, in Hawk form, might die. And Etienne charges Philippe with taking her to a priest he knows about. He's not a big fan, but he knows he has the healing powers. It's this imperious. This guy's one of those uh, classic hermit priests. Yeah. Living on top of a uh, rocky highland in a broken down old keep. Pretty much drunk all the time. Well, I mean, I already said he was a priest. Right. (laughs) Seems to live there by himself. At first he wants to eat the hawk. I mean, who wouldn't? (laughs) Until Philippe tells him that he was charged by Etienne to see that the hawk was not harmed. And the priest is instantly like, bring the hawk up here at once. And he goes, yeah, he goes from hungry to um, concerned real quick. Yeah. So he knows who they are. He knows about their curse. And he helps heal Isabeau after nightfall when she turns back into human form. And when he's taking the crossbow bolt out of her shoulder, we get a clip of the evil bishop who cursed them writhing in bed as if in pain in his shoulder in the same spot. So are they linked? Not really. Doesn't seem like it. I don't think it comes up again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems that the priest believes that they might be linked physically, but more on that later. So, eventually, Etienne meets up with them, and he takes off. He wants to go kill the bishop. Well, now, hold on a second. In this scene, though, with the uh, Imperius, he explains that some years ago... He took confession from both Etienne and um, Isabeau and ratted them out to the bishop, and that's why they got cursed. Yes, because the bishop was... A dick. And hot in love <laughs> with Isabeau. He he was kind of obsessed with her. He was a dick in love. And he made a deal with the devil... That, like you do. ...that the two lovers would be cursed, because if... He can't have Isabeau. No man can have her. Do you think the devil gets tired of, like, dealing with these petty requests from bishops? You'd think so. (laughs) It's a living, you know? Fair. It's his job. He's not stressing. That's a good point. It's his job. (laughs) Yeah. I just take the contracts, okay? (laughs) So Imperius tries to warn Etienne that if he kills the bishop, they'll be cursed forever. And he's convinced that he's gotten a message from God that if they confront the bishop together, their curse will be lifted. And he knows of a time in three days hence when there will be night and day happening simultaneously. What could that possibly mean? 
Etienne just tells him he's drunk and to go home. And he Go home, <laughs> priest, you're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and he takes off with Philippe. And they travel back towards Aquila to take care of that bishop dude. One night while they're on the road, Philippe and Imperius convince Isabeau, when Etienne isn't there to argue with them, that they have the best way to lift the curse. Dun, dun, dun! The mouse so she... and a rat. You have to plan together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Isabeau believes them and helps them set a trap for Etienne in wolf form. And they have him come to her over some ice because they're in some snowy mountains. Suddenly and unexpectedly. They change uh, see, uh, scenery a lot in this movie. That is true. Um, a lot of biomes. He falls through the ice. And Philippe has to come and save him and gets all scratched up in the process. And you then... you got lightly scratched for me? I am now at your service, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow this means that they can sleep together. Uh, Etienne and Isabeau, not yeah. Etienne and Mouse. And they see each other for a brief instant in the morning before they both change, as they are both changing back into their other forms. That brings hope. Mm -hmm. So they all travel to Aquila together, and lo and behold, there's a solar eclipse happening while they're there, and Etienne is trying to make his way to the bishop with Mouse's help. And he makes his way into the cathedral, fighting past all the guards and the new captain of the guard. And right before he can kill the bishop, he hears the bells toll, which means that Imperius might be mercy killing Isabeau in hawk form. Ooh, classic mistake. He thinks that he is has lost his love and he's ready to die. So he goes to kill the bishop and then Isabeau walks in in human form and she calls out his name and they go and embrace. And uh, Etienne forces the bishop to look at both of them. Look at us! While the eclipse is happening and suddenly the curse is lifted. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that was easy. And, uh... So they could have just, like, been out anywhere, and that would have worked? They had to make the bishop look at their faces. Oh, this curse is weird. I know. And then Isabeau drops the mic in front of the bishop. Oh! And then he goes to kill her, because he can't take it if she's with another man. God, <clears throat> let it go, dude. Seriously. But then Etienne just throws his sword at the bishop, spearing him through the heart. Insanely. <laughs> Chekhov's crazy sword throw style. Yes. And then they're all just laughing, and Isabeau and Etienne embrace each other, and they're all friends with Philippe and Imperius again, and the other priests that were there just start clapping for him, and they have a happily ever after. Yeah, and everyone shares a kiss, like on the cheek, and, and uh, Mouse and Imperius walk off holding hands, and I thought that was a very sweet ending. Very mm -hmm. cute. I like that the priests were clapping for the lovers. <laughs> yep. Maybe a little unexpected, but I guess they knew that the bishop was a real dick. Nobody had the guts to do it. They were just waiting for somebody to come, you know, eat him. They just believe in true love, as it were, you know? Listen, if God let it happen, then it was God's will. Yeah. A polite clap is at least slightly respectful. Yeah. <laughs> well, with that taken care of, I think it's time for the Delve. 
Hello, Traveler, and welcome to the Delve. This is where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, making of, and other parts of the movie that we want to talk about. Cool. So, guys, a little bit of a religious undertone to this one as well. Yes. Oh, yeah? <laughs> we got a theme going here. <laughs> so, what do we think? Do you guys think that Mouse is actually religious? That he actually is talking to God? Do you think God is ever answering him? He does say to uh, Etienne or Navarre. I'm going to say Navarre because that's just easier. He does say to Navarre at one point, I talk to God all the time and no offense, but he has not mentioned you. Yep. Yeah. He does seem to have a personal relationship with God, which is interesting because the religious system they all seem to be functioning within does seem to be Catholic. Yes, very ostentatious and ritualistic. Yes, and having a personal relationship with God is more of a, a relic or an aspect of Protestantism. It wasn't an aspect of um, Catholicism. In Catholicism, to be able to speak to God or hear from God or get messages from him, you need to go through your priest. At least during the Middle Ages. I mean, I think there's an aspect of that still alive today, but I think that there is maybe possibly, at least with some Catholics, more of a sense of a direct relationship with God, but you also need that intermediary for, like, the big stuff. Yeah, they... At least that's how my grandma thinks. They're the (laughs) ultimate religious authority... They speak to God. They can speak for God. Right. Maybe Mouse is kind of one of the people who started laying out the foundation for the idea of Protestantism. <laughs> Are you saying that this movie is like kind of pulling a uh, Back to the Future like creation of rock and roll moment with oh, Mouse man. kind of co-opting Martin Luther's uh, theses? <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, there has to be a cultural readiness for a massive change like that. So, you know, maybe he was just one of the people warming up to the idea, you know, because the guards are really into catching him. Oh, yeah. Right? And he's just a cut purse. Yeah, it is not clear. I mean, I maybe you're right. I think that heresy is the only possible reason why the bishop would send his guards on a fucking manhunt across the countryside to catch this ostensibly just a pickpocket. Who got away. So that's a really good point. He could be a heretic. I think you guys have a point here because in the beginning when he's telling the new captain of the guard to go after Philippe, he says something about having a fear that Philippe will be able to foment rebellion. Rebellion, you say? That sounds like a class struggle. Oh my goodness. So he's worried that Philippe's ideas will stir up the rabble-rousers. Yeah. That's a very legitimate concern for those in power. Yeah. When the peasantry realizes that they vastly outnumber the gentry or the royalty or the religious order, and that without the peasants, those in power would be completely screwed because they would starve to death and also be overwhelmed by their numbers, you know, uh, things can happen. Yeah. And if this is actually in France, well... Well, the bishop... um... The bishop was trying to control religious thought. Yeah, I mean, we open this movie with what is like clearly a tyrannical rule. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people in prison. Uh, where we see public executions. Yeah. Um, a lot of unrest amongst the peasantry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's Things the, aren't great for the common person. It's true. That's the perfect setup for the rise of Protestantism, the corrupted pa- Catholic Church back in the medieval times. Yeah. It all makes sense. And they don't even let um, people of any other class into the religious ceremony that they're conducting at the end. That They literally uh, lock the doors. Yeah. And that was um, when Navarre got Mouse's help to uh, break in. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, they locked the doors so that nobody else could interfere with their ceremony. Mm-hmm. Also, this uh, relationship Mouse has with God, right? Yeah. Constantly talking to him and talking to himself, just talking. Yeah. Constantly throughout the film, every yeah. second he's on screen. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Pretty he much. is a really good audience POV character because of that, though. It's true, and it makes him pretty charming, too, because yeah. it feels like he's talking to you a lot of the time. And I'm thinking... Are we, as the audience, God? I was thinking he might be talking to the script writer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But but we were talking about how he has this high charisma, this natural charm, right? It's because he's constantly practicing conversation with God and himself and trees and stuff. Yeah. He's talking. And he, he gets a lot of, you know charisma bonuses from just nice. constantly socializing even if no one is socializing back yeah he's just grinding that stat <laughs> it's kind of like in the older elder scrolls games i guess even like skyrim where like if, as long as you're sneaking you're always building up your sneak rating yeah, yeah. so you might as well just sneak everywhere you go and every time you talk to somebody gotta use that speech craft yeah and so he's just talking to whatever is there animals too. Yeah. My goodness, I think I just leveled. <laughs> He's talking to them as if he could have a conversation with them, as if they're like another human being. Yeah, the horse too. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I just thought it was really interesting because he's the type of person that's more, uh, usually more of a sidekick, you know, the fool, the comic relief of a film, and he was the main character of this film. Yeah, Philippe is definitely the perspective character. I mean, we're we're with him the most, um, so we get a really, and we get the most insight kind of into his psychology. Yeah, <clears throat> and he helps introduce us, like you were saying, Jack, to the world. And yeah. To, yeah. The, to the situation. He's, right, we learn about uh, <laughs> Etienne and Isabeau's backstory with Mouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Mouse is kind of like what the D&D movie protagonists wish they were. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Two charismatic and jovial thieves. Mm-hmm. Right. But, uh And right. actually athletic. Yeah. Broderick was doing some pretty dexterous stuff in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Climbing and jumping and leaping and hopping and, and doing all kinds yeah. of wild Tumbling. stunts. Tumbling. Yeah. Flipping. Gallivanting. Yeah. Dancing. Dancing. Yeah. Oh. He was, that winded him pretty fast. <laughs> but he could do it. He could do it well. Yeah. He knew how. That was interesting also. That's a good point. A peasant who knows how to dance. Yeah, that sounds like, you know, maybe out of his class. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm trying to say right here? I don't understand what you're trying to say. Oh, I was just, because, you know, you like, well, class struggle is what I was Class struggle? At. I love class struggles. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Did you see any? <laughs> I absolutely saw some. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, do you want to talk about it? I do. Oh, cool. So, since you asked about class struggle. I didn't do that. (laughs) 
you know, we have a very clear class divide between the antagonist and the protagonist of the film. The bishop is ruling this land, obviously. He's got an mm-hmm. iron fist, yeah. control over everything. As I said at the beginning of the movie, we see a tyranny. He even wears his fist to bed. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you never know when someone is standing above you while you're sleeping and you just got to conk a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Etienne does that to a guy and he just knocks right through his helmet with his bare, or I guess with his gloved fist. Oh, yeah, that was <laughs> awesome. True. So we've got the bishop, who is the antagonist of the movie. Again, he's ruling with an iron fist. He is the highest class that we see. He is the the most... um, He's the person in the film with the most power. The protagonist of the movie... Let's look at what we've got. We've got a pickpocket. So, Mm -hmm. basically a peasant. We've got a disgraced knight. We've got a fallen noble. And a hermit priest. Mm -hmm. These are all people who have been pushed to the periphery in one way or another, or who once had status, who have lost their position amongst the hierarchy. And they're labeled by those in power as outlaws and thieves. Exactly. I mean, the thief part is true. Yeah, but listen, he's a criminal because what other opportunities does he have? Mouse clearly has a great deal of intelligence. Yeah. He knows that he should be able to have opportunities, but what opportunities are there to have in a feudal society? There's no upward mobility. You're you you are born into a class and you die in that class. Yes. I mean, it's not actually that much different these days, but so this framing outlines part of what you're talking about with class struggle and the propaganda that those in power often espouse about those who are marginalized absolutely mm-hmm. right yeah oh look at the the one character who's never had anything in his life is a he's the peasant he's mouse he's our prospective character oh he's a criminal look at this guy what a what a conniving little thief he is yeah. totally ignoring the circumstances of his life where he's basically forced into doing these things just to have an opportunity and Probably he's trying to spread some kind of revolutionary thought. You know, a new way of thinking. In this case, a new religion. But that's a good framing mechanism for the Middle Ages, for a film taking place in the Middle Ages. Yeah. It's true. If the most lucrative peasant job is shoveling poop, what are you going to do if you can't afford a shovel? you got to pick a few pockets and cut a few purses. It's true. It's true. It's the sad reality of this system. I'd also like to say he swore to God that he would never pick a pocket, but he cut a purse. So yeah, but then he but then he admitted to God. He's like, "Well, listen, I said I was going to do it, but you know I have bad willpower. So what am I supposed to do?" Yeah, it's true. He has no choice. He was he was like, "I think you know my character when I made that vow to you." Yeah, that's great. (laughs) So it was interesting how they tried to flip. Uh, some of the coding around. So um, Etienne, who is framed as an outlaw by those in power, is all in black and he's on a black steed. And typically that is a color uh, that's associated with negative things or a villain. In film coding. Right. We in mean clothing it. or other, other uh, you know, colorful elements. And <laughs> what, meanwhile, the bishop 
and the new captain of the guard and all their surroundings are very light and framed in white clothing and the new captain who was defending the bishop the evil bishop was on a white speed which are typically um in coding in western film are characteristics of the protagonists of a film so they flip that around to kind of highlight this propaganda that those in power will talk about, oh, will use. nice, nice. But we all know that they're actually the ones who are evil and are kind of like wolves in sheep's clothing. Yep. And um, those that they're trying to disparage and who seem like they would be the villain from the perspective of those in power are um, actually the heroes of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that the um, inversion of the typical uh, color coding, mm-hmm. as it were, of film language was an interesting choice. Kind of forcing the audience to consider different perspectives about what's good and what's evil in film language. Exactly. So the curse was interesting. Um, he apparently made a deal with the devil. That's part of the lore of the movie anyway. The bishop did. Classic. Um, so that he could, he wanted to curse the lovers, Etienne and Isabeau, because she rejected him. So the bishop made a deal that they would be cursed for their days to be always together but forever apart. So uh, the devil took some creative license with that. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, the devil gets bored. Like I said, he takes a lot of these requests. He's got to mix it up. I mean, don't you ever do things in your job where you just got to spice it up a little bit? Yeah. yeah. I'm just imagining the bishop seeing that outcome and just being like, yo, what the fuck? <laughs> I sold my soul for this. I mean, was like, hey, come on. It seemed to work all right for him. It counts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So his love was a selfish, possessive kind of love. He was obsessed with Isabeau, the bishop was. And um, it's contrasted in the film as we get to know the lovers through Mouse and his conversations with them when they're in human form, that they have a deep camaraderie and trust for one another and a deep mutual love and respect. And they always work to protect one another. Um, That's a nice aspect of the film that I really appreciated. Throughout the film. So their love for one another is more of a true love. Um, And so it's contrasted against that selfish kind of love that the bishop had for her. Where it's like, he only cares about what he can control and possess. Yeah. He's a priest, but he seems to only be concerned with worldly matters. Like physical beauty. Right. Ooh. He doesn't love Isabeau necessarily. We don't get the impression that he loves her because of her intelligence or her godliness or anything like that. It's, it seems to be very carnal. He's a very... Yeah. He, he does not live up to what we think of as the ideals of a spiritually minded person. So, in the end, they force him to confront them in their love for one another. Look at us! <laughs> yeah. Uh, Etienne is, or Navarre, is yelling at the bishop to look at them in the eyes and to acknowledge, basically, that they love each other and that he has nothing to do with that. And he needs to basically just get get that into his head. Take a good look, Michael, because you'll never see these again. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, it was forcing him to confront 
how pure their love was to kind of make him see how cheap and tarnished his his version of it was and it broke the curse somehow i don't know mm-hmm. you know curses they're fickle yeah very fragile things yeah yeah speaking on their true love true love yes there was a kind of cheeky moment where the mouse philippe right yeah was talking to our valiant knight right he was kind of conveying a message to him or trying to convince him that it was possible to break the curse and he was kind of appealing to how lovely she was to our favorite knight by saying she's very lovely he can see why most men like fall in love with her he'd even had some thoughts himself right i thought that was an interesting line that they were close (laughs) enough for him to confess that yeah. But he was like, oh, yeah, but she's super into you. She's like, you're all she talked to me about. He admitted that on a physical level, he finds her attractive. But, of course, he's not going to try anything. He's not that type of dishonorable scoundrel. Yeah, Philippe is great. He's a he's a good friend, it seems. He even helps to, um, you know, give her privacy when she's changing and everything. Like, he knows that she's going to come out of her hawk form in the nude. And he's not going to be presumptive and just, like, be in the room. So he steps out, into the, even though it's raining. He, he respects her personal space. Yeah. He doesn't try to sneak a peek or any bullshit like that. Yeah, I was impressed for an 80s movie that we don't get any scene of him. Especially because we've already established that Philippe is kind of a scoundrel yeah Yeah. very very much a scoundrel but yeah he never (laughs) does that that like looking in through the shutters thing that one might expect from this type of movie it was a movie from this uh, era it was no weird science thankfully it was no weird science yes but what i was getting at right yeah it was uh our knight tells philippe you know wolves and hawks are two species that mate for life You know, and I was like, oh, that's so good. And then you were saying that the bishop has to acknowledge how pure their love is. And I was like, oh, it's so good. It all lines up because, you know, they got together and they were going to stay together, even if there's this horrible curse. And then they're so emotional on that one morning where the sun is taking a long time to kind of set or rise rather. And they get to see each other for just like a few seconds it's so profoundly moving to them. And then yeah. it moves along and she's a bird and he like r- falls to reach out for her. And then he's all crying and Philippe is crying. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I thought it was neat how these movies, how a bunch of the ones we've seen for Swords and Satire, a lot of the messages are just like, yeah, true love. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That is another, besides <clears throat> class struggle. That, that is, old standard. <laughs> yeah. That is a theme that's covered a lot in these fantasy movies. True love. And it broke the curse. That's got to be one of our bingos. True love breaking the curse. Right. Yeah. It was in the Brothers Grimm. So going to your point, there's actually an interesting bit of um, nonverbal storytelling that reinforces this point about the true love and everything. When Navarre shows up for the final battle, he has a bit of purple fabric from one of Isabel's dresses tied around his arm which to some people might just seem like oh that's just a little like whatever a little bit of flair that he's wearing mm-hmm. but the reality is that actually goes back to the chivalric tradition of a lady giving her favor to her preferred knight so it might be a bit of 
a fabric or a ribbon from her dress or something like that. Right. And the knights would wear this into tournaments to show that they have gained the favor of this lady. And, and it, it shows their loyalty to that lady. Right. It shows the loyalty. It shows that this knight has uh, expressed probably his adoration for her through romantic or chivalric poetry, which was all part of the knightly tradition and this code of honor and everything that was... At the very least, it is uh, expressed as an important quality throughout the Middle Ages, especially for the knightly class. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> what a nice tradition. It, it was uh, great to see him wearing that when you pointed it out. Yeah, I, I like that little bit of detail. And, you know, I think that it added a little bit of historicity to this movie that mm -hmm. I really appreciated. Yeah, yeah, he went into battle with his promise ring on. <laughs> <laughs> his purity ring? Yeah. Yeah. It it is interestingly related to another theme I saw throughout the movie of imprisonment and binding. And like mm. there's various degrees of this being a positive or a negative thing or the breaking of binds or the forging of binds between characters. So we start with the mouse Philippe escaping a prison. So obviously that's a pretty overt uh, symbol of imprisonment and, and the yeah. relationship that one has to imprisonment. But later on in the movie, um, Navarre ties Philippe to a tree to keep him from running away. And when Isabel wakes up in human form, she sees him and he's pleading with her to free him. And she cuts these binds free. And that's really when her and Mouse's relationship starts to develop more right. is on that night where she cuts his binds she frees him much like he freed himself from the prison but later on he has to sneak back into the prison that he escaped from through the poop water tunnel yeah. to get back he's so at the end of the movie he's right back where he started but he has a whole new perspective on life because he's been through this journey and that's when he says, we've come full circle here, oh lord. I think there might be a message in that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that nice little nod to uh, the very on-the-nose screenwriting. But mm. but fun. I mean, I think that I don't, I'm not saying that as a knock against this. Right. I think that's a good point for Jack's idea that he might be talking to the screenwriter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, ah, oh, yes, we've come back, writer. Yes, the hero's, the hero's journey is completed. Yeah. <laughs> One of the final little bits of this theme of imprisonment and binding is in the last moments of the film. When Isabel has, the curse has been broken and Isabel walks up to the bishop with this leather thong. Yeah. That's the, the bindings that's been on the hawk's leg the whole movie. The, every time we see the hawk flying, we see the falconer's leather thong wrapped around her leg. And in some scenes, uh, the hawk is wearing the hood right. that covers its eyes, and she's also holding that. Yeah, so she hands the hood and the binds to the bishop. She drops them and, at his feet. She oh, kind of yeah. throws them at his feet in a way. Yeah, so she rejects the binding. In the summary that she dropped the mic, that's when she throws it. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so she rejects this binding that bound her to oh, the bishop. Very good. And rekindles the connection she has to Navarre. 
That was her casting off the bounds of the curse in a way, too. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. Uh, in the movie, it points out that when they are in their animalistic forms, they don't know that they're humans in animal form, but they do seem to have a connection to one another, Isabel and Navarre. Their love is so deep and true that they still have loyalty to each other even when they're in animal form. Yeah, but they don't know that they are a human in animal form. Right. But there is an interesting part, and, and we've mentioned this, but we didn't add this detail, where Isabel in hawk form flies, is flying back to Navarre, it seems, but she actually goes to Mouse, and that's when Navarre has just a moment of jealousy. Yeah. But then Mouse uses that sweet persuasion skill to kind of talk himself out of a thrashing that he might get from this honestly intimidating knight who again like knightly vows are supposed to be that you would do anything for the woman you have sworn to serve and that you love so their friendship might have ended right there if mouse hadn't been able to talk navarre out of what was going on but navarre mm -hmm. is also kind of paternalistic towards mouse he is he is they have a cute relationship actually he's usually pretty nice to mouse yeah he is absolutely but i mean there's that that just that moment yeah there yeah. is he gives him a really icy glare yeah yeah and it, it you get the you do get the feeling like mouse has to in that scene has to choose his words so carefully but that icy <laughs> glare quickly changes to the warmest smile yes, yeah it does. everyone has such a wholesome relationship with philippe yeah, it's great. Yeah, the priest, the lady, the the knight, yeah, everyone. Yeah. Everyone just, it's very wholesome. Well, he's a cute kid. Like, I think he's supposed to be 16 or so, something I, like I mean, that. I mean, how can you not love the Broderick? <laughs> it's true. Well, another thing that we mentioned, which was just kind of funny, is uh, during the day, right, she's a hawk. Yeah. And she's awake and flying around, right? Oh, yep. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And then at night, she's mm -hmm. a person. Yeah. And she's awake and walking around. Yeah, that's accurate. And during the day, the knight is awake and walking around. As a human. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And then at night, he's a wolf awake and walking around. Mm hmm This all tracks. Yeah, so neither of them sleep. Oh, whoa, good point. Yeah, you're right. We <laughs> talked about this during the movie already. But... So they're both going to get dementia when they get older. Oh, no! That's so <laughs> tragic. Yeah, they're not polishing those neurons. Yeah, they're not getting that REM sleep. Oh, God. Maybe they... it's magic? Yeah. Question they... mark? They just have less brain during animal form. They do seem to be able to heal through animal form and then back to human form. Yeah. Um, because her injury to her shoulder when she got hit as a hawk, she was still injured as a human because the arrow was still in her shoulder. That'll but do it. after they took it out and put a little bit of green muck on it. They got some poultice up in there. Yeah, like that, that was fine. Like if it didn't puncture her lung, which it was high enough that it probably didn't. Like if she could keep it from getting infected, it would probably heal okay, but mm -hmm. it would take weeks. And she goes into hawk form again later on the next day. and uh, She's flying, she's flying free flying. and fancy free. Yeah, mm -hmm. so they seem to have some kind of healing capabilities because he also got hit in the shoulder in human form. He went to wolf form that night, and the next day he seemed to be okay too. Good point. Good so point. So I think they have some kind of minor 
healing capabilities. Yeah, it's true. That's convenient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Jamie was mentioning that it was funny how they both turned into very dignified animals. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't get changed into, like, a turtle and a slug or, like, two animals that would be completely, like, out of their element in this environment, like a penguin and a jaguar. <laughs> a blobfish. Maybe that was, like, the devil's dab the devil dabbing on the bishop because like maybe oh, yeah. he didn't like that bishop very much anyway so he's like okay fine like i'm making a deal with you for your soul so i'll do it yeah i'll just but, do whatever but, but i'm not gonna put a lot of effort into it i'll like turn them into some sick animals though. yeah They're yeah a wolf them. that can i mean didn't they say that like in his wolf form that navar like bit off the peasant's head or something oh whoa yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's supposed to be like. Or like chewed out his guts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something like. And that. then in hawk form, Isabel can like dive bomb motherfuckers. Yeah. Yo, it's true. What would you turn into if you got cursed? Oh, uh, probably like a cool bear. Oh, that's a cool. Or one. like, what's the huggiest animal? Like oh, a, like a big fluffy dog. A golden retriever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a Malamute. I mean, that's like, like that. the animal that you most want to hug. But what is like yeah. the animal that hugs the most? Like maybe some kind of probably probably a great ape. I, I think of myself as a oh, pretty great that's, ape. Oh. <laughs> You'd want to be a gorilla then, because they're actually pretty mellow compared to the other great apes. They have a um, yeah. It's a misconception that they are violent. It's actually chimpanzees that are very violent. True. Yeah. Um, yeah, probably something like that. That's a good one. In medieval <laughs> England, if you turned into a gorilla, oh my you'd God. just scare the shit out of everybody. <laughs> what is this unholy thing? Yeah, that would give Black Death a new meaning. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. what about you, Chels? Oh, boy. Maybe a fox. Ooh. Good choice, good choice. Mm-hmm. Spirit animal up in here. Awesome. Yeah, 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 exactly. Jack? Oh, man. Probably like a blue whale. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know just... It, it, you get a lot of value out of that. You're, you're close to the ocean when it happens. No, nah, I'd be like sneaking through... Like, <laughs> I'd be in the cage in the prison. Oh, God. And I'm like, please let me out. It's about to be nighttime. No, no, no. Shut up. And I just fucking explode into hell for And I'm in a tiny cage with bars, so I just, like, meat cubes spray out in every direction. Oh, like a meat grinder. Oh, Jesus Christ. Fucking hell. That's a grim death. Yeah. <laughs> but it really shows the fucking picture. <laughs> Good luck explaining that. Yeah, I think he'd lose his position pretty quick. The peasants would be like, this is the most cursed ill omen I've ever seen. (laughs) Holy shit. What is this? Oh, that's Baleen. What the fuck is Baleen? <laughs> yeah. Um, and any other prisoners that were in there with you would die. <laughs> yeah. Die in a flood of whale blubber. <laughs> I was just imagining a dude getting pressed and bursting through the oh. Apologies to our vegan listeners. <laughs> it's okay. It's just me exploding. <laughs> it's, it's fine. He's actually a human. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. What an oblivion is that? Well, this seems like the perfect time to segue to our next segment. 
evil, stupid, or misunderstood. Welcome to Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, the part of the podcast where we take a little look at the villain or antagonist of the movie and determine if they could be uh, misunderstood or evil or maybe stupid. What do you guys think? The Bishop. I think he's just evil. I think he's evil for sure, but he's a little stupid. Yeah. I mean, like, okay, like... First off, his plan is just bad. It's just a revenge plan. It's yeah. very petty. Like, come on. Like, if, if if he really just wanted to, like, have his way or whatever, why don't you just kill him? Yeah, he could have. It's like, it's so dangerous to be like, oh, this guy's the captain of the guard, like the most badass warrior. Yeah, we'll just um, exile him. That'll never go wrong for me. Well, I think it's yeah. because in the backstory, I think they said that the two escaped together. Oh, no. So he put that curse on them because he couldn't get to them. Ah, I see. Well, you got me. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I mean, usually in stories, if you're working with the devil, you're probably evil. Yeah. <sighs> I am so tired of that stereotype. <laughs> yeah. Well, not all media perpetuates that. Are you thinking about Lucifer? Yes. What a good <laughs> show. Yeah, yeah. I love that show. But yeah. I would say... The main flavor of the dish is evil, but with a sprinkling of stupid in there. Yeah, that that makes sense. That tracks. I mean, he does hire... We didn't talk about him before, but he hires um, this wolf tracker or hunter. Cesar, played by Fred Molina. Yeah, and um, he just hires him to go after uh, Navarre, and he doesn't give him all the information. He just kind of... <laughs> randomly sends him out and yeah. tells him to look for a beautiful woman named Isabo with a wolf who loves her and he's a black wolf and like is just having him kill random wolves and there's no real plan there. That sucked. I didn't like that part. Yeah. No, I didn't either. But. but yeah, he's. it looks like he had been killing gray wolves and when he meets Isabel and he learns her name, he just goes, Isabel, ha 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 ha, and then rides off and then he dies in a wolf trap. Yeah, yeah, he was a, a minor antagonist or a minion, and he was just pretty stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for him, honestly. Yeah, misunderstood. I, yeah. He was just he yeah. was just trying to make a living, right? Yeah, he's just like, oh, they're hiring me to kill a wolf. Okay, sure. <laughs> I think he I'm... doesn't know what their story is. No, yeah, he doesn't have a pony in this race, but I think he's most menacing because he he looks. Like, dirty. Oh, you think that because he looks like a peasant that he's bad, huh? Well, I think that's the way it's <laughs> framed, for sure. It is framed But I don't think way. he's that bad, because, again, he's just like, Isabel, huh? Ha ha. All right, see ya. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> Alfred Molina usually plays a villain. It is hard not to like any character that Alfred Molina plays. Yeah, so. sure. <laughs> he has so much great charisma, and he's like a nice guy. So it's like really hard to believe him as a villain most of the time. Yeah, yeah. and he's a Swords and Satire alum from yeah. The Sorcerer's Apprentice, as every listener already knows. Yes. But yeah, I'd say Bishop, Evil, Stupid, uh, The Hunter, Misunderstood. Oh, hold on. Yeah, yeah. I agree. But another stupid point for the Bishop... 
during the final fight scene, he's just standing there. He's not, like, ordering his guards to fight Navarre or anything. He's just standing there agog, like, what's going on here? He doesn't say a fucking word. Yeah. Your rival just showed up on a horse in your fucking... Church. Church, ready to fucking throw down and murder your ass, and he's just like, uh, uh, He's not trying to escape. He's not trying to order anybody to do anything in particular. He's just basically standing there waiting to die. Yeah, he's just catching flies. He's killing my captain of the guard, and then he's going to kill me. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Basically. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Are you guys ready to head to the smithy so we can forge some ratings? Aye. Welcome to the smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment from the film. Chelsea. Why don't you tell us an epic moment from Lady Hawk and then tell us your rating from 1 to 10 swords. You know what? I really like the beginning, so I'll give you my epic moment. When, after he gets out of the shit tunnel and he's <laughs> um, swimming through the shit water and um, he makes a plea to God. He's talking to God, the Christian God, and uh, he says... Uh, if you save me and you help me get out of here, Lord, I promise that I won't pickpocket anymore. I'll, I'll lead a virtuous life. He was afraid that like something was coming after him in the water, and it turned out just to be, it turned out just to be a cow's skull. Yep. And, like you usually find um, in shit tunnels. So he vows to follow the Lord. And um, he starts swimming out of there, and he starts hearing Gregorian chants. And um, he he thinks it's God calling to him. And so he says, I'm coming, Lord! I hear you! (laughs) He's a little loopy, I think. He He was just swimming through shit water. Yeah. He thinks the Lord is calling to him directly through these chants and, and through song. And um, he starts climbing up a tunnel that leads into this amazing, beautiful cathedral. Where the final battle takes place. But yes. this is the beginning. Yeah. And um, he, so he, he's climbing up there thinking that, the, that God is calling to him. And he, he, somebody ends up stepping on his fingers and he falls back down and escapes another way. But it, I just thought it was funny that he was calling out to the Lord and saying, I'm coming! I'm coming to you! <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, you know, he's a peasant, so he's probably never seen the inside of, like, a cathedral like this before. No, probably He not. might think that that's actually where God lives. <laughs> he might. It kind of seemed like it. Yeah. So that was my epic moment. And, um, I'm gonna give this movie a 7 out of 10 heirloom swords. Oh, nice. Oh, um, sick. This is a really good film. There were some editing issues with the night and day stuff that got confusing sometimes. So that's the why night I, and the day. <laughs> that's one reason why the rating is um, not higher. But I still think it's a solid rating. It was a great film, and I enjoyed watching it, especially with you guys. Oh, all right, Jack. Your rating after an epic moment. 
Alright, well, I don't think my epic moment is going to be a repeat for either of you two, because it's pretty specific. There's a, a scene where our favorite knight is pulling our favorite thief. Oh, you mean Navar and Mouse? Yeah! Cool. Navar, uh, well, Mouse is on a bed of pine branches, and Navar pulls him over to the smoke that's being blown by the morning fire, and uh, it wakes Mouse up. But that's not my epic moment. That is a cute moment, though. It is a cute, cute moment. It is. That's a cute moment. But my epic moment is when the, it's, the camera is on Navar. And in the background, above the fire, you see the fish there, uh, there cooking above the fire on a spit. And the stick is going through the back of the fish and out the open mouth, so it just looks like the fish is screaming. <laughs> but it, it, you know, it has the huge bulbous eyes. It's just like, oh, with a stick coming out its mouth above the fire. And that was pretty epic. <laughs> that was a pretty good moment. You yeah. might miss it, in fact. <laughs> it's so subtle, but yeah. the most memorable scene. Nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And your rating? My rating is probably going to be six thrown swords and a short sword poking at someone's foot through a sewer drain. <laughs> All right. Yes. Uh, I like this movie. It feels like a lot of the important scenes, though, are like bulk filler scenes in the movie, which I don't think that's how it should probably feel. The pacing is a bit strange, like we touched on, but... The relationships are very cute. Yeah. The characters are very charming. And, I, you know, I just feel good watching it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, six and a half out of ten. Very nice. Respectable score. Mm -hmm. So, how about you, Jamie? Oh, thank you for asking. My epic moment is actually an epic line. And it happens right at the very end of the movie. When Mouse and Imperius are leaving the cathedral and imperious hand in hand. hand in hand yes hand in hand they're holding hands in a very heartwarming heterosocial relationship this is after uh mouse gave imperious a nice friendly kiss on the cheek and they've gone up and kind of said their goodbyes to navarre and isabel mm -hmm. and then they grab each other's hands and they exit the cathedral which i thought was really nice and during this moment uh, Imperius says, like, I really want you to, you know, uh, live a good life, and I hope to see you at the pearly gates. And Mouse responds, I'll be there, Father, even if I have to pick the lock. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just one of the greatest lines in cinema history. It's so good. Really good. So I'm going to give this movie seven heirloom swords. Um, it's a classic it really does a lot of great stuff. I like the relationships. It's very much a story based on relationships, built on relationships. I appreciate that. Like Chelsea said, there are some editing problems that hamper the movie. It runs a little long for what it is. I think an hour and a half is a better runtime than two hours just for the content of the movie. Um, they probably could have had less like nights on the road and still kind of gotten the, the points of the story through a few less scenes. But overall, very fun, great cast, very enjoyable, awesome time watching with you guys. Yay. Seven heirloom swords. Good, respectable rating. Yes. And on that note, I guess it's time to head to the bounty board. 
You enter a dingy tavern. Lights flicker from candles sitting at nearby tables, and the smell of spilled mead and tobacco smoke wafts into your nostrils. You see a large board next to the entrance, with parchment daggered to the wall. You grab the nearest piece of parchment that catches your eye. It reads, Did you hear that a sequel to The Departed was just announced? Yes. Really? really. What? Just kidding. It wasn't. But you just 100% believed me. Are you tired of playing a waiting game called When Will My Favorite Movie Get an Unnecessary Sequel? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a couple comedians got tired of waiting and decided to make those sequels themselves in the form of hilarious audio dramas. In the show Unnecessary Sequels, show hosts Brandon and Walker create fully realized visions of sequels to movies that shouldn't have them. Form of... A bad sequel. (laughs) In fact, their trailer was just released, and the first season of six sequels begins on February 12th with Her 2, Him, (laughs) where we discover that new stupid OSs have been made to keep them from evolving beyond us. Listen and find out how Adam's character bonds with her new OS named Jeff. Episodes come out each Wednesday. Subscribe now to Unnecessary Sequels wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single one. And now it's time for Rewriting History. Rewriting History is the part of the podcast where we take the movie we just watched and come up with an idea for a sequel, a reboot, or a spinoff. And guys, I gotta say, at the end of the movie, I was just craving more of that awesome Imperius and Mouse team-up action. Yeah, they had a great friendship going on. It was getting so cute. I wanted to see more of it. What could you want more than the ongoing story of a sneaky but lovable religious scoundrel and a priest? They're the perfect (laughs) odd couple. Yeah, I thought you were true. describing the priest in the first bit. I might have been. <laughs> Wh- which one's the priest? Which one do we see talking to God more throughout the movie? That's true. That is very true. And Loki, our cat, is currently playing with some paper in a box. Yep. That'll happen in the background as we do this. Yep. So, guys, what kind of awesome adventures would these two go on? And what kind of hijinks would they get into? Now, here's what I'm thinking, part of it, after I ask you that question. We get from the scene at Imperius's fort that he's a little bit of a trickstery Kevin McAllister home alone type yeah. guy. He set a lot of booby traps that the soldiers uh, walked into when they tried to come and um, take Isabeau captive. Yeah. And he kind of has this great line about how he's a priest, not an architect. To, yeah. to make excuse for the fact that the bridge collapses from his little clever... Uh, pull trap. Yeah. A disclaimer as well. They're all non-lethal traps, as he's attempting yeah. to be a good priest. Right. So I'm thinking, alright, we've got, both these characters have obviously religious backgrounds. What if they start a church, but they start a church somewhere where the bishop's men are still stationed nearby, those who are still loyal to the bishop, and maybe somebody else is coming into power over the religious authority who's just as 
let's say, dickish Ooh, as the bishop. Yeah. So they have this church, right? And we do a total Home Alone scenario oh where the soldiers, yes. where the soldiers are coming in trying to kidnap or trying to capture them, and they've rigged up the church to be full of booby traps. That's amazing. Yeah, that is really good. They have to disarm all of them every time that parishioners come to worship. <laughs> well, no, I think that there's probably just like a night where they know that the um, guards are coming. Okay. So they set it up. And like right. maybe some of the townspeople are like kind of know what's going on and maybe help them because yeah. at this point, Mouse and Imperius have really established a good rapport with everybody. Yeah. So what are some great um, traps for a church? Like acid in the holy water? Yeah, yeah, you remember the uh, the trap from Conan the Barbarian that's a huge branch with a spike that impales you in the chest? <laughs> Classic booby trap. Something uh, like that, but with like a big boxing glove at the end so it doesn't kill you. <laughs> Just like punches them out the door. Yeah. Or like a big like mailed gauntlet. Yeah, and it punches them, and they fly back, and their, head, their helmet is still spinning in place. <laughs> and the yes, perfect. Maybe, like, a pit trap of some type. Like, filled with crucifixes? Oh, <laughs> oh God! That's the booby trap crucifies someone. <laughs> it's a little on the nose for a Christian trap. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, you get it. <laughs> Maybe they have some simple... Um... Slipknot foot traps where somebody walks into it and they get hung from their foot up in the air. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah, Maybe done with, like, a censure. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. perfect. Oh, God, the pitfall could just have a bunch of thorns at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that... It's not lethal, but that's pretty... <laughs> That's pretty lethal adjacent. I mean, yeah, somewhere there needs to be, like, a trap that puts a nail right through the palm of somebody's hand. Yeah, right? like, yeah of course. And then, you can't trap a church without the old palm nail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, so they um, maim all of these soldiers. <laughs> Listen, we're doing, like, a Home Alone thing. Like, they come out mostly okay. And then, like, I guess in the... Oh, and in the end, like... Instead of the police coming, Navarre shows up nice. to to uh, to apprehend all of these guards. And with Isabo, and now she maybe she kind of has inkling of her life as a hawk and remembers being oh, nice. a badass fighter, and so she learned some fighting techniques. Nice. You know, she was pretty good with that knife. Yeah? She did always have her knife out. What are you thinking? Rogue yeah. or maybe like a, a ranger? I oh. think a uh, rogue. Yeah. She's pretty, pretty lithe and um, acrobatic. And, and charismatic, she's, too. And she's bonded with Mouse, who's the quintessential rogue. Yeah. So maybe she like kind of has like a, a primal memory from watching him while she was a hawk, watching him like a hawk, right. and oh, picking up man. some of his talents. Yeah. yeah. Like the way that, she, that he um, was uh, hiding on the battlements of the, of the fortress when... Uh, he was trying to hold her up, and she slipped out of his fingers, and then sunlight came up and turned her into a hawk. So she yeah. would have seen him sneak around and hide while she was flying off. Nice. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, so she uh, fights with Navarre when they come to help them. Oh, nice. This is great. Yeah. And we could start setting up somehow in this a, a medieval cinematic universe. Nice. Where... 
they have to call in, you know, the person that replaces the bishop, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that, like, the Pope, back at this time, sees that a bishop was just killed, and he's like, oh, we have to send a reinforcer. Yes. Right? Yeah. So that's who comes. Maybe, like, a cardinal. I don't know the actual ranking system. Oh, man, what if they send, like, Solomon Cain? Yeah, that's a No, wait, one. he wasn't a Catholic. Oh, yeah, that's right. He was very much not a Catholic. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, Decidedly non-Catholic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's say they send someone who has a very red uniform to show that they're straight savage. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And red then, being a color of savagery. Yeah, yeah. Classic. <laughs> Blood you know, and bloodshed. murder. Yeah, you got it. And then, yeah, Navarre and Bowen. Yeah, they, they get together. And they're, they're From coming, Dragonheart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Bowen shows up. And then at the last second, they're like, oh, we need someone to like... Hold, like, flank the the keep, but we're low-staffed on people. We can't do it. And then, who shows up but the main character from The Night Before Christmas? Sir Cole! Sir Cole, with the little girl who's grown up and oh, is a knight. Oh, yeah. Well, oh, okay. I was yes. going to say, would this be before or after he was sent into uh, the future? Because... Doesn't he now live in our timeline? Yes, but he's a time traveler. He <laughs> fixes mistakes throughout history. Okay, okay. Yeah. He has to set the timeline straight. And because Christmas is in danger from this you know going who else wrong. Is a time traveler, Kevin! Yes. Oh snap! That's right from Time Bandits. And he he we, in our rewriting history, he goes around oh. fixing the time stream, so he would come back to help them too. Oh man! And wow! Then, oh, and some of the some of the other Time Bandits have knight armor, so yeah. maybe they already know some of the characters. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> A swords and satire cinematic universe, huh? Yeah. I think I have an idea for episode 100. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. But more on that later. <laughs> yep. For now, I think it's time for a side quest. I had an idea. I think Jack has a side quest for us. Why, yes, I do. I was thinking this week, a good one to recommend, just from this film, would be Castlevania, the anime. Excellent choice, sir. Yeah. I got big Castlevania vibes from this bishop. This yeah. bishop, he's supposed good to be... Point. Yeah, yeah. He's supposed to be a man of God, right? A high up in the Catholic Church at a time when the Catholic Church has a bad reputation for corruption. In Castlevania, it's a similar setting where the corrupt Catholic Church kind of has control over everything. The bishops are cruel in that. It's true. They have dominion over the people. And they act out of hatred quite a bit in that show. One of the priests or bishops in Castlevania reminded me a lot of the one in this movie specifically. And there's a great scene that I was reminded of where... If you wanted to see it really stuck to the priest in this movie, you'll really like it in that show. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he gets his comeuppance, we'll say. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. But, uh, Castlevania, dudes with whips fighting vampires and hi hypocrisy. Also, half vampires with swords fighting vampires. It's true. And nomadic women with magic powers. Pretty great. 
fighting vampires. Yes. <laughs> also, Trevor Belmont, the main character, is vo- voiced by the same actor who was Thorin Oakenshield in the Hobbit series. Richard oh, yeah. Armitage. Yeah, very cool. All right. We love this show so much. We all dressed up as the three main characters for this past Halloween. Yes. That's right. Which was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yes, it was. Castlevania is my favorite video game series of all time. So uh, when I heard that there was an anime coming out a few years ago, I was very hyped, and it has lived up to all of my expectations. So this is a good time to get into it because there are two seasons out on Netflix, and um, a third season is coming out. So Like, very soon. Yeah, so you can get hooked, and then you'll have... All the new sweet episodes to get into after that. Oh, so exciting. I'm going to go watch it right now. (laughs) So on that note... (laughs) Good recommendation, Jack. Thanks. Then we'd like to thank you all for listening to Swords and Satire. It was really great of you to join us. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, Make sure to follow us on Instagram and join our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed the show, maybe uh, hop on over to iTunes and leave us a little review. Those reviews are starting to pile up. We could always use some more, though. Yeah. Uh, Let everybody know how much you loved it. <laughs> that's right. You can email us your questions at swordsandsatire at gmail.com. And, you know, let us know what fantasy movies you like or what parts of... Lady Hawk, you found most interesting. Or just, you know, say say what's up. Just send us a nice little hello. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, Hail Crom! Hail Crom!